Welcome. You are listening to Intentional Conversations from Nika White Consulting, an encore presentation of our weekly podcast where we intersect diversity, equity, and inclusion with leadership and business. Let the conversation begin. Now, last but certainly not least, it gives me great pleasure to take a moment to officially introduce today's guest co-host. Her name is Katarina Rivera, and as I always do, I'll read her a formal bio, and then I'll give her a chance to come and share and greet this audience in her own way. Katarina Rivera is a public speaker and DEI consultant with over 14 years of experience in the public sector. Katarina works with companies to improve accessibility and inclusion, retain employees, and design better products. She is the founder of Blindish Latina, a platform smashing disability stigmas through storytelling, advocacy, and training. Katarina has worn hearing aids from a young age and was diagnosed with progressive vision loss at 17 years old. She has a BA from Duke University, a Master's of Education from Bank Street College of Education, and a Master of Public Health from Hunter College. Katarina is a certified professional in accessibility core competencies. She is also a member of Respectability's National Disability Speakers Bureau. And last, Katarina is committed to social justice. And so let's vodcast community in our own way help to welcome guest co-host Katarina, maybe place some accolades or words of welcome into the chat, or you know, perhaps you even can put some of those emojis up that's available, but let us let her know that she is welcome and appreciated for being here with us today. Welcome, Katarina. <laughs> Thank you so much. I'm looking forward to today's conversation. Oh, likewise. And so we are so grateful that you accepted our invitation. Uh, we never take that lightly. So I've read your bio, Katarina, and one of the things here at the podcast that we'd love to do is to make sure that after we've read the formal bio is to give our guests, co-hosts, an opportunity to greet the audience in their own way. And here's the question for you, to share with this audience maybe something that we would not know by reading your bio. What else can you share with us about Katarina? Well, first I'd like to share that my pronouns are she, her, Ada, and I will do a visual description of myself, which is an accessibility best practice. So I am a light-skinned Latina woman with dark brown wavy hair worn down. I have dangly silver earrings on, lipstick, and a sleeveless black top with ruffles. Behind me is a virtual background with the Blindish Latina logo repeated multiple times in columns and rows. And the logo is a bold black eye with the words at Blindish Latina written in all caps and black text right below. Something that you would not know from reading my bio is that I started my career as an elementary school teacher in the Bronx and then Harlem. And that really impacts the way that I show up in the DEI space. Teaching children is not that different than educating adults. So I learned a lot about creating an inclusive space and community from my third graders and first graders. That is so interesting. Thank you for sharing that. And thank you for modeling this and inclusive behaviors of describing yourself. I think that that's something that we all can take note of. So we really do appreciate that. So I want to jump right in and I want to ask, um, well, really my next question, I was going to say first question, but I, that was already a question <laughs> I presented to you. But what do you believe, Katarina, is disability's current place within DEI? And do you feel that it is adequately represented as a diversity dimension? 
This is such an important question and I'm really glad we're starting here. Disability is part of the natural diversity of humankind and it needs to be a part of DEI work. When we talk about creating an inclusive culture, creating an, an inclusive culture that is inclusive for disability benefits everyone at a company, just like curb cuts in the sidewalk benefit everyone. We are all using them, not just wheelchair users. They are helping everyone be safe if they're pulling a suitcase or pushing a stroller or just trying to get into the street in a safe manner. Um, so this is important for people to understand the benefits of why accessibility should be focused on beyond just the benefits to the disability community. When we talk about representation within DEI work, it's not currently adequately represented there. When I did a poll on LinkedIn recently, I asked, has your company held any training on disability within the past 12 months? I had 99 people that responded, so I feel it's a pretty good sample. Only 18% of companies have had two or more trainings in the past 12 months. 12% have had one training session. And then everybody else, 69% were in the no category. 31% of them have not held any training, but were interested. And 38% had not held any training and there were no plans to do so. So this is just one way of looking at an indicator because if people haven't taken action, then it's not a priority. That's how I view it. So oftentimes we also see in diversity statements that disability is not named yeah. and is not, you know, it's just not planned for sometimes when we think about this work. So that's something that I really work to change. Yeah, and you do a great job, um, Katarina. I have been following you for quite some time and you were gracious enough to be a part of a large conference for one of our um, NWC clients, um, a DEI conference last year. And I remember your talk, I was able to go back and listen to the replay, was so riveting and so educational. And I think that it placed a heightened level of awareness um, that people then felt called to action around. So it was, it was really um, a huge opportunity for us to bring you onto this podcast to continue spreading um, that education. So thank you so much. In a previous conversation, Katarina, you stated that the largest minority group in the workforce belongs to those with disabilities. So why has disability inclusion not been prioritized in the workplace? Why is it sometimes an afterthought? And, um, and what can we do about it? Mm -hmm. Let's start with ableism and discrimination. Uh, yeah. We need to go, the isms always are the root yes. of everything. Yes, let's do. Yeah. <laughs> so if we were to define ableism in a very simple way, it's the idea or the view that non-disabled people are more worthy or valuable and then disabled people. And this holds true in the workforce. It, it enters into the workplace and it influences decision-making. So if I was to give an example of an ableist thought that might be within a lot of people, for example, when someone is disabled and a non-disabled person thinks about their life and they say, oh, I could never do that. I could never live like that. You know, and they think that somehow the life is not possible 
or mm-hmm. not um, not full of joy, not yeah. rich. Uh, there's really this kind of separateness and thinking, I think, about like disabled people somehow not being part of society. And there are historical foundations to that because in the past, many parents, for example, were advised to institutionalize their disabled children. And many children were not in public school before the EDA or, you know, decades before that. So there was an element of disability being hidden from society, not being allowed to even coexist. And so I think that we still have a legacy of the, the thoughts that relate to that. So there is this lack of understanding that we're in the workforce, we're in society, we can't, another important thing to acknowledge is that people are not aware of the diversity of disabilities that exist, including neurodiversity, chronic illness, mental health conditions. You cannot look at someone and know whether or not they have a disability. If I was not using my white cane when I go outside, most people would look at me and not think, oh, she's blind or she can't see me. If I did something that they couldn't understand, they would say, oh, she's ignoring me, she's rude. You know, that's the assumption that they would place on me. And, and so there's just really not an understanding. If you don't see that someone has a disability, it's kind of like not a possibility that, oh, you could actually be with a disabled colleague and not even know, you know. So then another thing I wanna share is that when we talk about who's in the workforce, 79% of disabled employees do not disclose their disability to HR, 79%. So we're already in the workforce, we're already at working at companies and for many reasons, there is, we're not represented in the demographic statistics, but we are there. So when I talk about the impetus of why this inclusion work is so necessary, that's one of the things that I frequently talk about. Mm-hmm. We're going to talk about this later, but companies do think that the ADA and complying with providing reasonable accommodations is all they need to do, and that's absolutely not true. Mm-hmm. So I'm glad that we're going to talk more about that. But I think those are some of the reasons why we're seeing this issue and why it's not been prioritized. Yeah, and I appreciate you amplifying it. I think that the more we talk about it, the more awareness we can generate. And especially when I hear you say that the largest minority group in the workforce belongs to those with disabilities. On one hand, many people will probably question, well, is that really true? You know, let me fact check that. But again, you brought up the fact that there are invisible disabilities that also adds to that, that, that population of people. And so we have to make sure that we're thoughtful about that. And yes, I do want to get into the, the ADA conversation a little bit later. I want to talk about human cost. So what is the human cost when organizations do not provide inclusive workplaces? What are those implications, Katerina? So many. <laughs> disabled, disabled job seekers often miss out on employment opportunities and advancement. When someone is disabled and they're in an interview process, oftentimes I think the decision makers make assumptions about what that person is capable of doing. Mm -hmm. And it's an assumption from their 
biased lens. They don't have the lived experience with disability. So that assumption of, oh, that person can't do the job. Instead of asking, how would you perform the function of this role? Because when you don't have that lived experience, I think it would perhaps seem impossible or feel like how could that work? But disabled people are creative, resourceful, have adapted in so many ways to a world that is not designed for us. We are highly creative and adaptable. So we need to be given those same opportunities. I see a lot of disabled people becoming entrepreneurs because yes. they have not been able to access inclusive employment that supports them. That includes things like remote work, flexible schedules, captions when they need it. So when we talk about disabled people that are in the workforce and the human cost of, for those employees, they're often overworking because they are expending energy to adapt to an inaccessible work environment on top of their full workload. Yeah. So that is a lot to manage. It is. I'm and sure it gets exhausting. Feel, oh, oh, go ahead. I was just saying, I'm sure it gets exhausting, but yes, continue your thought. You said those mm -hmm. employees fill. Yeah, it is exhausting. It's a lot of energy and when we think about how that feels, you know, those employees are not thriving. They're not feeling seen. They're feeling unheard. And the companies where they're working are missing out on their full contributions, on the innovation that their full contributions can lead to. Even when we think about customers and clients, when there's a human cost there as well, when they don't see themselves in marketing, when they don't feel that a company is thinking of them. Yeah. So we just touched on how exhausting um, this process can be for um, people with disabilities to have to navigate workplaces that are not set up and created for them to succeed. So I want to get your, your perspective, Katarina, on how can organizations better create cultures that are not only um, disability inclusive, but also can alleviate the triple tax of physical inaccessibility, social exclusion, the exhaustion, the advocacy labor, what can companies do? Hmm. It all starts with commitment, mm -hmm. fully committing to disability inclusion and investing in it with people, money, time. That's the foundation. That's where we have to start. I recommend that companies seek external support, work with experts, work with people who have lived experience with disability so that you are going to do it right. That's incredibly important. Then you can follow a process. It's great to conduct an audit, measure where you are, identify those opportunities. Um, place to start as well can be working on your reasonable accommodations process because oftentimes that is not even functioning very well. Making sure that it's clearer and more supportive for employees. It's important for managers to understand the process as well as their role in it. 
a question I would ask companies is, do your managers know how to handle disability disclosure? Are they able to explain the process in a simple way? When we look at HR and the accommodations process, they need to be equipped with best practices and resources, including how to support employees when they've identified an accessibility issue, but don't know the solution themselves. We are not vocal rehab, rehabilitation experts. You know, we, if we're having a struggle in our job and we go to HR and HR says, okay, have your doctor write up a letter and say what you need, that's not helpful because we often need support to figure out the right solution that if it's a technology issue, which happened to me, I couldn't hear on a phone in one of my jobs and there was a technology solution that needed to work with my employer's technology. So I couldn't just figure that out on my own. Other ways to make sure that companies are really creating cultures that are disability inclusive are to engage in regular training on disability awareness and inclusion, and then operationalize your learnings into your culture within SOPs, the handbook, language guides, within your diversity statement, your hiring and promotion processes. The, they're all super important. We can't just learn and not apply. The last thing I would say for this is everyone needs to recognize that it takes time and to create benchmarks for success along the way. Mm -hmm. So many great practical ways in which organizations can lean more into disability inclusion. So thank you very much for sharing that. Um, I, there's a question that just appeared into the chat from Ann Kingston, and I want to address that question before I go to some of the other topics that I want us to delve into. And here is Ann's question, and thank you, Ann, for your question. How do we know that 79% of disabled employees do not disclose their disabilities? Would love to share the stat with my organization. So she's asking for a source. Is there a source that you can point us to for that data that you shared, Katerina? Yes, it, there's an article in the Harvard Business Review that came out in 2019 that cites a report from Copeful. Copeful is rebranded. So mm -hmm. the name that I think it was Center for Innovation or something. But um, I can get the source. I have it in a document and I yep. can put it in the chat. I also see something from 2015, but I'll share that exact article yeah. in the chat. Yeah, it looks like Cocoal is the, the 2019, I believe, source, but then also Lynn Roy has shared a resource as well that may be of help. And so, yeah, thank you for that question, Anne. And I will tell you that, you know, as a practitioner in this space, we do a lot of assessments and audits, and it is often that we hear um, that employees hold and they, they keep it close to their chest, whatever their disabilities may be, because they don't have that sense of psychological safety in disclosing that information to know that they're going to be protected and supported. And so they will just harbor that. And, and I think that's a huge opportunity, which is why sometimes we recommend stay interviews. It's a, a time throughout the year where everyone is kind of engaged in conversations with HR or their direct uh, manager around what are your needs? What special accommodations will help you to show up at your best to be able to perform at your best? And so um, something that was coming to mind as we talk about that 79% stat. 
So I want to move Katarina into the intersectionality of disability. There are varying degrees. And I think that sometimes when people just hear the word disability, unfortunately, their mind will go towards what can't happen, right? What they can't fulfill, what they can't do. And so what does it mean when we think about intersectionality of disability? And in what ways does it manifest itself, that intersectionality within disability? Mm -hmm. I, I just want to acknowledge all the conversation and the chat. I'm looking forward yeah. to getting into it. Thank you, everyone, for everything that you're sharing there. When we, we talk about disability, we need to talk about intersectionality because disability can intersect with any other identity dimension. Absolutely. Age, religion, gender, race, socioeconomic status, etc. This means that whenever we work on addressing inequity, we need to adopt an intersectional lens to make sure we're not perpetuating bias or inequities that exist. I thought a really concrete example that we can talk about is through the lens of feminism and equal pay. Mm -hmm. When we look at the year, we have multiple equal pay days for different groups of women. When we talk about March 15th, 2022 being equal pay day, that is for white women only. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And that's the day on which they make the same amount that I was white men made the entire prior year. So they mm -hmm. catch up, so to say. Now, Latina equal pay day this year is December 8th. Mm -hmm. yeah. So here we have a huge gap between white women and Latina women. The so when we don't talk about that and we don't separate out or kind of just have an intersectional lens on what's happening for this group, what's happening for this group, have we considered disability? You're going to miss something, and not everyone is going to be equally benefited from something positive that you're trying to do as well. We need to include disability in our change work to make sure we're seeing the whole picture. So for me, as a disabled Latina woman, the intersection of all of those identities affects how I'm perceived in the right. workplace. Women who have strong opinions and ideas are often viewed as too aggressive or troublemakers, while men who do the same things are viewed positively as leaders. So that's already happened. Because I'm Latina, I can also encounter bias if I'm too loud or too vocal or I don't express myself in a acceptable way, quote unquote. And then layering my disability identity on top of that, if I'm speaking up about an access need or a disability related issue, I might be the only person speaking up for that. So all of the intersectionality and oppression comes together to create obstacles for my voice being heard and to being promoted and viewed positively by my coworkers. In my work now as a public speaker and DEI consultant, I show up authentically. I'm fully myself with all of my identities. I'm not making myself smaller or quieter for anyone. And it feels amazing. 
I love that. I love that for you. And I hope that others are listening to this and, and being inspired by, by your sentiments and your message as well. So I do want to let the audience know that we're going to be shifting momentarily to take your questions. We will give you a chance to unmute yourself and present your question live. If you so desire, you can use the raise hand feature in Zoom for that to let us know you want to speak. Um, but if you desire just to be here in an auditory capacity and perhaps you have a question and you just want to send it by way of chat, we are watching the chat and we'll be sure to bring all of that um, into the live conversation as well. So I want to go a little bit longer, and this is where we get to ADA, because we referenced it before and we said that we're going to come back to it, and we're at that point in time now, Katerina. Some may mm -hmm. think that legislation such as the ADA ensures that all with disabilities are working in environments that are inclusive. Why is the law not enough, and what role does workplace discrimination play? Mm. So let's let's get into it. Like let's ADA get into is, it. <laughs> yes. The Americans with Disabilities Act was passed in 1990. It requires employers to provide reasonable accommodations to employees who need them. Employees have to disclose in order to receive support. And I also believe that violations of the ADA have to be reported. There's no enforcement arm. There's no automatic enforcement that's being paid for by the law. So that makes it weaker in terms of how it actually protects people. I unfortunately hear stories all the time of disabled employees whose employers did not provide the accommodations that they needed. And even when accommodations are provided, it doesn't mean that suddenly every situation that the employee encounters is now inclusive for them. Right. So I'm going to share a story of my accommodations that I mentioned earlier. So before I was an entrepreneur, I worked as a manager at a large nonprofit organization. I had an accommodation because I could not hear well on the office phone with my hearing aids. It was very soft. It took months to figure out the solution, which ended up being a pair of headphones that cost around $450. Now that I had my headphones, did that make everything in the office inclusive? Not at all. It just helped me perform the essential functions of my role. It did not help me in meetings when I could not hear colleagues. Yeah. It did not help me at the holiday party, which was held in a dark venue in which I could not see. It did not help me in the lunchroom where many people were moving around to heat their food and the two microwaves available. I don't have peripheral vision at all. So that was a stressful environment. So the ADA doesn't create inclusive workplaces. It's a mandate that represents the bare minimum. And remember that many employees are not disclosing their disabilities. So these employees are not supported at all by the ADA because you do have to disclose. And disclosing is a very personal decision. So I always wanted, I don't want people to think, oh, we have to get people to disclose. We need to put that pressure on an individual disabled person. My call to action is always on the employer, on the company to create an inclusive culture for everyone. Mm -hmm. Very well stated. And I don't think I've ever heard it really expressed in that way, that yes, there are some organizations that can say, we are going to follow the laws of the land. We're going to do um, what is required. And sometimes reasonable ends up being um, translated into bare minimum, right? And it does not take into account some of the other considerations that will help a person really thrive 
in, in that environment. Yes, to your point, I can provide the headphones, but what about all of these other things and other spaces that I walk into and these other experiences that, that are compromised for me? So I love that you um, amplified that for, for this audience. Um, so well stated, and I'm, I'm seeing some really good comments into the chat relevant to that. So we've already talked about that 79%, right? People are not comfortable always disclosing information. Why do you believe, Katerina, that this is the case? And what can organizations do to build that trust and create opportunities for people to disclose, be open, and feel like they can be their authentic selves? I just heard you say that you place the, the onus on the organizations. And so I want to lean into that a bit more. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so as we just spoke about, disclosing is a very personal decision. Disability identity can be a hard journey. You're unlearning and dismantling the internalized ableism that you have within yourself because you grew up in the same society that we all did that talked about disability in a harmful way. It took me many years to feel proud of my disability, to talk about it positively, and to deal with the diagnosis that I received at 17. So I definitely don't believe that we should be pressuring disabled people to disclose. I also think that the people that are unsure whether or not they should disclose and are open to it are really looking for indicators of action in the culture. What, what's happening? Have other people talked about their disability? Is there any executive leader who is openly disabled at the company? Mm -hmm. I think it's those kinds of actions are very telling. And when we look at the employer side, if they can focus on creating inclusive cultures, designing with accessibility in mind and every process function and system, that will lead to a more supportive work environment for everyone. And that will make disclosure less necessary. Another thing to not forget is that not everyone even knows that they have a disability. Not everyone knows, for example, that a chronic health condition that they have is classified as a disability. Mm -hmm. So chronic migraines are a disability. And if they can interfere with work. Not yeah. everyone knows that that's even labeled a disability. And some people are not even diagnosed yet. There are many women, for example, with ADHD who are not diagnosed until their 30s. And they were in the workforce prior. Mm -hmm. So imagine if they had a environment that was designed inclusively already. That probably would have helped them a lot. And so I think at the company level, focus on that, designing inclusively. And also remember that microaggressions are happening all the time. I think there are so many, um, I'm sure that disabled employees are experiencing microaggressions and instances of non-inclusive language being used. And that addressing things like that will also help people to feel more comfortable that it is a psychologically safe space. If they're not hearing words like, crazy and OCD and, you know, wheelchair bound and all these kinds of things that can be really harmful language because of the ideas behind them when it comes to disability. Yeah, so that's another really good point. We have to also educate people on um, inclusive language so that people aren't unintentionally creating additional harm for individuals. And so I love that you brought that to the conversation 
as well. So I'm going to ask one more question and um, then I'm again, I'm going to open it up because I definitely want to make sure that we get to you an opportunity to discuss your book. Um, so let's let's jump into that now. Your book is entitled Use Accessibility to Expand Your Reach. Tell us about your book, um, the premise of the book, what inspired the book and anything that you want this community to know. And we'll be sure to also source it and place that information into the chat for this community. Thank you. This free ebook is available on my website and it just makes accessibility easy. I wanted to create a very simple introduction for people that want to take a first action but don't know a lot about accessibility. So in the book, I share 12 best practices and I include resources. It's a great starting point for anyone who wants to get started with learning. And I also chose the title very intentionally, use accessibility to expand your reach. Because many people don't know that digital accessibility actually helps you reach a larger audience. For mm -hmm. example, people prefer to watch videos that are captioned. The general population prefers this. So I invite you to download it today and to keep learning with me on Instagram and LinkedIn as well. Fantastic. We will be sure to also share your social media handles, Katarina. So um, Anne Kingston, who is here with us today, has been very active in our chat and she has something else that she's going to contribute. So welcome, Anne. We're so glad you're here. I'm adding you to the spotlight. Hi, yeah. Thank you so much um, for all of your remarks, Katarina. I appreciate you sharing your experience and insights. Um, and we are coming up to tomorrow, which is World Autism Awareness Day. So I've been working with my team to put together some communications for our organization. Um, and I wanted to ask actually about something that you were touching on, but kind of more specifically, um, if there are people who are on the fence about disclosing, like for example, you know, I could check the anxiety and depression box, but I was confiding in a friend and she said, oh, you shouldn't do that because you know, that's not something that affects your kind of workplace. Um, and I work remotely. So um, to the degree that that's true, you know, kind of depends on the day, but um, I don't necessarily require special accommodations. Um, but is there some kind of advantage or disadvantage in, you know, checking that box within your organization for the wider community or like, does it somehow add or take away from, I guess, the wider efforts? Like, is it better for a company to quote unquote, like see bigger numbers? And I guess it, it just depends. So I was just generally wondering your thoughts. On the subject. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I just want to validate what you're saying. I feel like what you just talked about, your thought process there, is resonates for a lot of people because I think there are, it's just an example of how personal of a decision this is and all the things that you're trying to balance. Are you, is showing up going to help others? Is it going to help you? Is it going to change the way that you're perceived? change the way that your talent is perceived. And so one thing that we always need to remember is that discrimination exists because people have ableism. They don't understand disability necessarily. So that's always the case. And I think for anybody 
like you who is trying to consider all of these things. The, from the employer side, if they are a federal contractor, they have to meet, I think, a certain quota of disabled employees. I think that's the only thing that I've heard of as like as a definite mandate for employers. Now, when one thing that I might suggest to you, more than putting this decision on yourself, is perhaps gathering with disabled employees and allies if you don't already have some kind of employee resource group. Because, and I say in disabled employees and allies, because I think that creates a space where someone can show up, even if they're disabled and not have to disclose necessarily in order to be in that space. And it also invites people that are ready to learn because any change that you're gonna create, you're probably gonna to need to create in a group. Your disclosure might not create a big change within your organization. But you can think of perhaps if you have a request or something that you need, I would encourage you to ask for that. And it doesn't always have to be an accommodation request. It can be something that with your manager, they're discussing the way that you work best. And if something is stressful to you, you can, you can use kind of language like that to help your manager understand how can you perform your best? How can they support you? And it doesn't always have to be like, this is my diagnosis. This is a big, you know, it's, it can be very, um, it can raise a lot of emotions, that type of moment. So I think that's what I would share with you, but there's so much conversation to be had. And I definitely think that um, it's not helpful. There are some people in the disability community that I think really push that everyone should share, everyone should be so vocal, mm -hmm. but we're all on our own journey. So mm -hmm. you're okay exactly where you are. Mm -hmm. Appreciate that. Yeah, that was a really important question, Anne. So thank you for bringing that to the conversation. I tend to often believe that critical mass can be powerful in informing decisions, especially if, if the, the leaders that are the decision makers are um, people first, human centric minded, right? Um, so I, I appreciate that question. I think that I probably would have gone from the perspective of um, volume speaks speaks with the great level of power, but I so appreciate and value Katarina your your perspective on let everyone have their own journey. Their story is their story to tell at their pace. Um, and I also love the recognition of bringing allies into the conversation to really help amplify some of those opportunities. And so, thank you, thank you so much, Anne. Okay, so Kelly Knight has a very important. Um, question and commentary that she added to the chat. Kelly, I'm happy to present this on your behalf, but if you would like to present live, then I'll, I'll pause just for a brief moment to see if you will unmute yourself. And if not, I'll present it for you. Um, hello. Um, I do, I'm working from home today, so, um, which is not typical. We've been back in the office for a little while in my office, but um, I apologize if I need to mute because a dog bullet might want to hears me talking and wants to talk to the people I'm talking to. It's okay. <laughs> so I work as a communications manager in a benefits office. So over the last 
few years we've been kind of revving up how like the types of print materials um, that we do. And of course with the pandemic coming, we've done a lot more virtual things. We had a virtual benefits fair. Um, we've had, we just a couple weeks ago had an in-person and virtual event to try to bring more people in make it more accessible. That was a wellness event. So I guess my question is, what are like do you have advice for best practices for making like our communications more inclusive and invite inviting meaning also like we do a lot more video right now we're going to be doing a lot more video in the future um i want to make our virtual environment we have a virtual education environment we implemented i want it to look inviting not just have the information that people need so like do you have best practices or advice mm. well I'm so glad that you're thinking about this and that you want to make everything as accessible as possible. So I would definitely recommend that you download the ebook because a lot of what I'm gonna tell you is in the book along with links for resources. A few things that you can think about is including transcripts anytime that you have a video that you're putting out. So beyond having captions on the video, having a transcript is really helpful as well. And it also helps for SEO, if that is important to you, because it's easier for the Googles to kind of find the information in a text format than from the video. The other thing that I would suggest is learning some important accessibility practices for your visual communication. One of the most basic but very important things to look at is color contrast. Mm -hmm. So many times we see graphics out there that are using colors that are too similar mm -hmm. for people like me who have um, a vision disability. There are also people that are you know, colorblind out there and so that can be difficult for them to access. So for example, my virtual background has a white background with black text on top. That's like the greatest on the color contrast index. But say that you're using one type of blue and another type of blue, there are websites that you can check the exact color codes, put them both in and see what's your score. Is it a good acceptable color contrast? should you change that color. So I highly recommend you to look at color contrast, font, type of font that you're using, font size as well. And there's just a lot that we could talk about. And also with videos, depending on your um, budget, you could look into description for those videos, whether that's something that you can do in the audio itself, an audio description. And if you want an example of what does that sound like on Netflix, that's something that you can select when you're watching something. And it will describe what's on the screen along with the audio that you're hearing from the program. So it's, it's like a quick place to get an example of what audio description sounds like. But if you don't have the ability to put it in the video, you can also create an audio description file that could be downloaded. It's like, other ways to do it. But I definitely recommend transcripts and working on the graphics. I think those are good places to start. 
Great, thank you so much, Kelly. I'm catching up on the chat and I see that um, Inez Elliott actually had really astute commentary earlier today that I was not aware of, but diabetes is now a disability. Um, Inez, would you like to um, share a little bit more about your commentary there, contribute? I'm happy to spotlight you. You're very kind. Well, actually, <laughs> if you look at a lot of applications for employment, diabetes is considered um, a disability. So I, I was thinking in terms of, and it's one that's invisible. So are people feeling safe to raise that, knowing that as um, Katerina mentioned, there are, um, there are federal regulations where businesses do plans and they look for having examples of the applicants with different abilities, or are people afraid to come forward because they feel as though it would be held against them in that process. Mm. Uh, it's different when you're an employee versus an applicant. Um, when you're an employee, there are different um, protections, if you will. Yes, it's, it's gonna be very interesting as well, what we're gonna see in the future with uh, long COVID is also designated as a disability according to guidelines that came out from the White House. And I'm, I am interested to see, are people going to be open about that or not? But it's also like, what's gonna happen on the employer side? And that's really important for people to think about. There's a lot of times that, well, what I think all employers should be doing is thinking about what kind of support can they build into their culture automatically yeah. And also, what can people ask for? Like, what can they provide? Do they even need to know why someone is asking for this kind of support? If you really want to support your people, does it matter? If someone's, does someone have to say, I have diabetes, and so I need a flexible schedule sometimes for doctor's appointments? Or can they just say, I need a flexible schedule sometimes? <laughs> you know, and, you know, that that is really the, the way that I would like to see companies operate in the future, offering support as a default. And um, I wanted to address something in the chat. I saw two things. There was a question on the headphones that the company, I was, my story about my accommodations. So yes, the nonprofit that I was working for purchased the headphones. That was them providing the accommodation. Let me note, I worked there for over six years, and that was the only expense that they had on me related to my disability. So when some companies think, oh, disabled employees are expensive, the majority of accommodations cost $500 or less, just like mine. The other thing that came up in the chat is the link that Courtney shared on Accessibility, I responded that I do not recommend Accessibility due to their business practices and that there's activism in the disability community against them. I saw that um, people were asking for some more amplification. If you Google Accessibility and lawsuit, you will see um, basically there's a few things. Accessibility is an AI generated accessible kind of toolbar, that's their main product. It, it's an overlay 
on top of a website. So it doesn't actually change the website itself. And one thing that they were doing is that they were basically marketing this product as making the website fully accessible. And that's not actually a claim that is backed up by the user experience. So they were overselling the impact of their product. The blindness community in particular has been very vocal against you know, how they've showed up and the fact that their solution is not everything that is needed. So I, that's just a very quick summary. There's so much stuff you can find op-eds, you can find people that are in the accessibility space, accessibility professionals talking about them. There's a lot to dig into, but that's my little teaser. <laughs> Thank you so much, Katarina, for educating us and, and bringing that to, to the conversation. So I have two quick comments, and then I want to move to another, another question with the remaining time that we have. I was really struck by your, 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 question, your comments a moment ago when Inez was actually sharing her thoughts. And you mentioned, and I'm paraphrasing here, that your approach is to encourage organizational leaders to just be in the mindset of, I want to support by any means necessary because I want you to be at your best. And it reminded me of the fact that sometimes in order for organizations to feel compelled to make an investment towards an accommodation, they will ask for proof. I need a letter from your doctor. I need this. I need that. And it feels so invasive to me. Um, and so I just wanted to get your thoughts and your opinion on, um, is that practice harmful or is it something that the, um, the disability community um, just expects or uh, I would love your thoughts. What you're talking about in terms of the proof that is yes. written into the ADA. That's mm -hmm. how the accommodations process works. It's an interactive process it's supposed to be and you need to have some proof on your side of what is recommended for you. Now, in practice, the way that it works is not necessarily supporting the disabled person as, as I shared earlier. So for example, in my situation, I had to get, when the pandemic occurred, remember that I don't have peripheral vision. I no longer felt comfortable to navigate independently for a long time because I felt like, you know, we were told to be six feet from others. I could not be confident in my own abilities to be six feet from people all around me that I, I could not see beyond here. So I asked my employer for a remote work accommodation. Just, I wanted to have it as long as we were socially distant. And what I had to do was I had to get my primary care provider to write a letter and then submit it to my employer. My primary care provider does not know anything about like Usher syndrome or anything. I tried to get an ophthalmologist to write it. They're not a specialist in my condition either, but I didn't have a pre-existing relationship with them. And they basically didn't write the letter for me. So that I had to go to my primary care doctor and tell them exactly what to say. And the only reason I knew exactly what to say is because I talked to a lawyer from disability rights which is an organization that I believe is nationwide and exists in every state providing free legal support for disabled individuals. So I highly recommend them. They told me exactly what to say in the letter. I told that to my doctor and you know, that's how we got it done. 
but without having that outside expertise, I would not have known. So I think that that is really important to have. There is a profession called vocal rehabilitation specialists that know a lot about accommodations. There is a website called Job Accommodations Network where they have a guide to tons of disabilities and accommodations that can be a part of, you know, in response to that disability. And they have a hotline, which anyone can call. You don't have to be the disabled person. So after sharing all of that, because this is required for the ADA, if you do need an accommodation, um, that's how it has to be done. Now, do I like it? No. Do I think it could be better? Yes. And for an inclusive workplace, I do think that overall, if we're trying to support all of our staff and create an inclusive culture, we're not just talking about accommodation. So I do think that the company can decide whether it matters to them yes. to know people's individual circumstances or not, or whether they really just want to know what kind of support do people need. Absolutely. And I think for those organizations that can lean into asking the question about support and then accommodating the needs without needing proof are the ones that are going to find themselves with um, loyal employees who really feel um, that they are accepted and they are included and supported. And so that, that's why I asked the question. I know that we have some standards to try to help those who are not even in the space of, of thinking about those considerations. It's almost like a bare minimum, but the bare minimum for me, I believe, which is a lot of what you've shared today, is just the, the bare minimum. We need to go beyond that. We need to go beyond that. So the other comment that I was going to make is that I've often heard parents, especially through the assessments that we've done for a lot of organizations, that parents of special needs kids or kids with disabilities, they also are reluctant to share that information, disclose that information because they fear that it's going to send a signal that I may be inaccessible some days, right? I may not be available to show up um, and they fear that that may compromise their ability to be in right standing, good standing with their employer. And so thoughts about that, Katerina? Hmm. Well, first, I just have to comment on the term special needs. There are many advocates in the disability community that are not in favor of using that term. It is so common because of education and special education, but mm -hmm. the argument against it is just that our needs are not special. They're yeah. just needs. And uh, in terms of parents not wanting to talk about their children's disability. I don't personally know a lot about that in particular, but I, I have seen a lot of parents that are vocal about their children's disability and sometimes center themselves in that narrative um, and kind of get into some problematic ableist kind of relationship with disability where they might be looking at their children as inspirational, brave, kind of the simplified and harmful narrative about disability that we often see in media and entertainment and perpetuating that. So I can understand that anybody in the workforce who has something going on at home or has someone that they're caretaking for or that requires extra commitment would be 
in a non-inclusive work environment challenged by the idea of sharing that. Mm, no, thank you so much. We're at the top of the hour and I can't believe it. This hour has gone by so fast, but I, I wanna thank this audience for showing up. I wanna thank you, Katarina, for sharing so much of yourself, your knowledge and the wealth of resources that we've been able to um, place into the chat for this community. Um, I would love for you to close this out in whatever way that feels appropriate. If there's something we have not touched on today that you're feeling a lot of energy around that you want to socialize with this community, I wanna give you that brief moment to do so. Well, I, I just want to thank you so much for this opportunity and for everyone here in the chat today, hear everything that you've shared. Let's all start to become more aware of the ableism that is around us and it's going to show up. I think once you start to tune in to it, you start to notice it everywhere. Perhaps you weren't thinking about that before. So I hope that you gained something from today's conversation and I hope that you continue to stay in connection with me. Fantastic. Thank you all. Have a great weekend. And we really do appreciate you being here with us today, Katarina. See you all again next week. Bye-bye.